It's Friday, November 13th, and this is the COVID pod with the Shisha. I'm Colleen Cronin, Editor-in-Chief of the Brown Daily Herald, and I'm here with three of my colleagues from the Science and Research Desk who will be introducing themselves to you. Hi, I'm Kate Ryan, and I'm a Senior Science and Research Editor at the Herald. Hello, my name is Amelia Sagaita, and I'm a Science and Research Section Editor here at the Herald. And I'm Rahma Ibrahim, a Science and Research Senior Staff Writer. On today's episode, Dr. Jha will talk about President-elect Joe Biden's new COVID-19 task force and what they will and won't be able to accomplish before um, Joe Biden is inaugurated in January. Um, And he also will talk about uh, Pfizer's potentially 90% effective vaccine that they sent a press release out about this week. Um, What does 90% effective mean? When could we see the results of uh, further trials with that? vaccine and um, what would it look like if it eventually gets rolled out in the coming year. Stay tuned, listen in, email us if you have any questions, and enjoy the episode. Last time we spoke with you uh, in the run-up to the election, we obviously didn't know who had been elected, uh, and we've since found out that Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. And this week, uh, President-elect Biden announced a COVID-19 task force uh, made up of uh, scientists and doctors and public health experts. We're curious what you think about the makeup of this committee and if there were any surprises. Yeah, a couple of things. So first of all, um, I will, I, I have to say, I, I was very pleased by the election and, and, and not for sort of kind of traditional uh, partisan reasons, but really because uh, the current administration, especially in the last three, four months, has taken an approach to the pandemic that I think is uh, borderline unconscionable, just really has decided to let the infection spread. And um, and the Biden team really has been very, very clear, and Mr. Biden himself has been very clear throughout the entire campaign, that he plans to take a very different approach. And I believe we need a different approach. So his views on the pandemic really were much, much closer to mine. Um, in terms of the, 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 the task force, the pandemic task force that he uh, named on Monday this past week, um, you know, I <laughs> I tweeted, this is the A team. It's actually funny because I put A dash team and a bunch of people were like, the A minus team? I'm like, no, 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 A team. <laughs> but it is the A team. It's the A plus team, if, if I, if, if I uh, need to clarify. Um, but let's talk about why it's, so, it's such uh, a good team. It is a really broad mix of individuals. Um, it is people who are physicians, who are health policy experts, uh, people who are infectious disease experts, people who are experts on issues around health equity. Um, when you think about all of the different ways in which the pandemic has affected our society, there are people on, on the task force who've been deeply uh, enmeshed in each of those areas. So uh, it's a great group. There are some challenges, like the biggest one is President-elect Biden is not President Biden, he's President-elect. And he has no more, officially no more power today than he did two months ago or last week. Um, and uh, so, so then there are some fundamental questions, like what can the task force actually accomplish? 
And, um, and I believe there are two main things they can accomplish, three things maybe. Um, one is what we can start getting both from the task force and from Mr. Biden himself and, and Senator Harris is much more clear and consistent information. So one of the major problems in this pandemic has been the constant misinformation that has not just come from various sources, but also has been echoed by the White House. And I think having a national figure um, speaking plainly to the American people about what the status of the pandemic is, what the likelihood is of things over the next three, six, 12 months, uh, I think will be immensely helpful. Because uh, I really think it has been deeply unhelpful for our current president to be saying really since February uh, that the pandemic is about to go away, that the virus is going to disappear. Guess what? The virus is not going to disappear. It's not going to disappear next month. It's not going to disappear in three months. It's not going to disappear. It may not ever disappear. It, now, you know, we'll be able to manage it very effectively. Uh, but there are very, very few viruses that we have been able to eradicate uh, from, the, from the face of the planet. Uh, so, so it's not at all clear to me that that's ever going to be possible. But the bottom line is we just need to level with the American people, and then we need to help them understand how their lives are going to change over the next three, six, 12 months. Uh, if we can do what we can do. So I think that communication is going to be really important. The team can do, help do that. The second thing the team can do is lay out the plans for what Mr. Biden will do on January 20th uh, when he assumes office. Right? You don't want to start thinking about it at that moment. You want to start thinking about it now, and they can do that. But the third thing, which I think would be probably the most, I don't want to say most important, but just as important, is they can start sending out market signals now. So I'll give you an example. There's almost every major company that makes testing um, or could make testing, make diagnostic tests. Um, I have spoken to almost every one of them their, and their leadership. We have so much more capacity to ramp up testing in America than what we're actually doing. Um, right now we're doing a million and a half, maybe two million tests if you include all the antigen tests that are being done per day. We should be at 10 or even 20 million tests a day. That would make a profound impact on, on the pandemic. So the question is, why aren't we? And it's basically because the federal government has been absent. And when I talk to companies and they say, yeah, we could probably do another you know, 20% more. And then I say, what if I told you that, that there was no limits on money? Like you, would, you could get lots of resources, you could get help from the federal government. What could you do? And they're like, in that context, and if I'm guaranteed resources, I could probably double my capacity. And, but of course, I'm like a random, private citizen, I don't have the ability to say, go ahead and do it, and I promise we'll pay $100 million, right? Like, I, I, I couldn't write a $100 million check. But the Biden team could make that promise today, that if you do it, by after January, we will be in power, and we will make sure that you get paid, right? And that would send the kind of signal to the market where people would then start really ramping up production. So that's the, the challenge. That's the something that they can do. That market signal that we're coming and you can really start doing things differently, I think can be incredibly helpful in getting things going, even before they have any formal power. I think you sort of just touched on it, talking about increasing testing, but in the first 100 days of a Biden administration, are there a couple of things that you think could happen that could make the difference and maybe help us out in this coming winter? I do. So I, um, and again, that in order to get that accomplished in the first 100 days, they got to get going now, right? Um, but what I think they can absolutely do is, and what I'm going to want to see, and, and, and I think they is, so again, I, as I said, we're, 
we want to see ubiquitous testing. We want to get to a point where there's just testing happening all over the place. And, and the value of it, just so everybody's clear, is when you can test people on an ongoing basis, you pick up a ton of the asymptomatic uh, folks. I mean, why are we testing on campus at Brown? We're testing on campus because we want to pick up asymptomatic people. Now, why do we want to pick up asymptomatic people? Because asymptomatic people spread, and we want to catch them before they've spread the virus to lots of other folks. That's how you prevent outbreaks. And there's very good uh, modeling data and other types of data that if we do uh, lots of asymptomatic testing, uh, we can actually bring the pandemic under control. So um, I want to see ubiquitous testing. And if we're at a one and a half to two million tests a day right now, I think by the end of the first hundred days of the Biden administration, I will be disappointed if we're not at five to 10 million tests a day. And I suspect we can be um, for two reasons. One is I think it has been fully within the power of the federal government to enable it. Uh, Mr. Trump and, and his team have just chosen not to. Uh, but second is they've been saying that's what they want, and they're committed to doing it. And so they, are the, they claim to be committed to doing it. They have the power to do it, and it would be immensely helpful. I think it's going to happen, and I would be disappointed if it didn't. Do you think we'll see a national mask mandate? I think they're going to try. Uh, again, I, obviously not a legal scholar, and there are people who wonder whether such a thing is possible. Um, so I think they're going to try, and I, I think that's a good thing. But I'll tell you, I think there's something even more important than that on mask wearing, um, which is there are a lot of places that have mask mandates where people don't follow it because of a combination of misinformation, uh, a sense that somehow masks are political. And, um, you know, I'm not advising uh, President-elect Biden, but if I were, one of the things I would suggest to him is that he consider um, in, in this interim period going and visiting red states, states that did not vote for him, and talking to people about the importance of wearing masks. And it's one thing for him to do it from Delaware. And of course, there's safety issues and the pandemic is going to be raging. And, and again, his team's going to have to figure out whether he can do this. And, and whether. But I think that would send a very powerful signal of, of him saying he wants to govern as an American president. Um, and second, um, that he, I believe he would have a chance to really uh, win some hearts and minds by going to people's home states and saying this is really important and this is not important for politics, this is important for people's lives and health. So I would love to see that. I think we might, we probably will see some sort of an effort to do a mask, national mask mandate. But fundamentally, this is about hearts and minds more than it is um, laws, though laws are important. So last week in our Q&A, we discussed the possible outcome of the election, and you had mentioned speaking with the Biden team. Could you perhaps elaborate on the capacity to which you did that and if you'll be in touch with them during the transition? Absolutely. Um, so my strategy throughout this entire pandemic has been uh, I'll talk to anybody who's interested in listening, and I'll share my views with anybody who wants to hear them. And so over since March, I have spoken to people on the White House task force many, many, many times. Uh, I've spoken to other people in the, in the White House who are not part of the task force. I have spoken to Republican and Democratic governors, Republican and Democratic members of Congress. And my strategy is the same thing, which is I just tell people what I think we ought to be doing. And my, you know, and my general take is uh, my advice is free, and if it's useful, please come back for more, and if it's not useful, uh, don't. And, and I've also spoken to the Biden campaign team multiple times during the, during the campaign. 
and nothing is going to change. I know a lot of the folks on the transition team. I know a lot of people in the, on the task force. Um, several of them are my friends. Um, I expect to remain in contact and tell people what I think. And, um, but I, I, I try to do it both. I mean, and, and there are two strategies I use. I, I generally do it in a very informal way. That way I can just tell people what I actually think and I don't have to guise it in the context of what do I think is going to play well or not well. Um, and, uh, and second, I tell them in private what I would generally say in public. I don't really change my message. Obviously, in private, there are some specific issues they might come up. They might say, well, I'm really struggling with this issue or that issue that, that they can't say publicly. And obviously, I, I uh, keep that in confidence. But um, I try to be very transparent and open about this. And again, uh, I don't really struggle with um, trying to think about changing my message. I just feel like I, there are certain things we ought to be doing. And uh, and I will and I will say that, and and so um, yeah, we'll see what happens. But it, but um, my goal is to try to continue to be helpful both to the White House over the next two months because they control uh, the levers of, of government, and uh, to the Biden team to the extent that they need or want it. Yeah. So speaking of thinking about what to do next and the next steps to take as well as what can we do to address this virus? As like you said, if we can't eradicate it right away, we did get um, some exciting news earlier this week about the Pfizer vaccine um, being over 90% effective. So we were thinking if you've had the chance to look into the study behind that a bit more, um, could you elaborate on the significance of those findings? And what do we really know about the vaccine as this stage right now? And what is its potential moving forward? Yeah, uh, great question. The uh, Pfizer vaccine, there is no study behind it yet. They just haven't released any data um, beyond what was in the press release. And I tend to be very, very cautious about analyzing studies based on press releases. And I'm going to throw a little bit of that caution to the wind right now and say I think this was a really big deal. Okay, so um, why do I think it's a really big deal? Uh, because um, I don't think Pfizer is manipulating the data for a press release. I just think the cost of doing it would be way too high. This is way too high profile. So I generally believe the headline numbers, that the effectiveness data is going to show 90 plus percent effectiveness. Um, second is it's not like we have no data on the Pfizer vaccine. We do have some data from the first and second you know, phase trials. Um, but the reason why I think this is a really big deal is this is the first time we have seen data that shows a vaccine is actually effective. Until now, we've shown that it generates an immune response. Well, that's great. But we don't care about an immune response per se. We care about it if it protects people. Right? That's the goal. And there is plenty of history of vaccines that generate immune responses but don't actually protect people from infections. And the fact that this one does seem to do that is great. Um, second is 90% uh, effectiveness is not what I was expecting. So I've been saying for months that I think it's going to be 50 to 60%. And if it's 70, that'd be great. And I can't even really hope for 80. And so 90 makes a massive difference uh, because it really, if once vaccines are widely distributed, it will really change the dynamics of the, of the uh, virus. Again, it won't eradicate it, right? It won't make it go away the way smallpox has been eradicated. Like, you, we don't think about smallpox, mostly. Should, most people shouldn't be, because it's been, it's been, 
it's been eradicated. But we, but I don't think that's going to happen with this. But a 90% effective vaccine really makes a big difference. The couple other things that to me it's really useful to understand is 90% effectiveness of this vaccine makes me much more optimistic about other vaccines. So the Moderna vaccine is very similar in lots of ways to the Pfizer vaccine. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Moderna vaccine also comes in at 80 or 90%. And that'd be amazing. The last point is, you know, the, almost all of the vaccines have been targeting the spike protein of the virus. And there's been a fear in the back of my mind, I think in a lot of people's minds, that we've put all of our eggs in one basket. And what if we misunderstand something fundamental and the spike protein ends up being not, uh, like targeting ends up not being useful? And that would have been a catastrophe because it would have meant that almost every vaccine was destined to fail. And this has flipped it. And now it feels to me like almost every, almost every vaccine is destined to succeed. Again, I don't want to get too far ahead. I'm literally going off of a press release only. So I realize that I'm being uh, a little less cautious than uh, I generally am. But I see this as really good news. And I see this as there's been a light at the end of the tunnel and the light just got a whole lot brighter. Um, it's still months away. I mean, we're not, we're not like, we're not, quote our president, we're not turning the corner. Um, but it is, um, um, but it is really good news. And I think we should take it as that. I was thinking about an article I read in the Atlantic this week about how vaccine development may, with these results in mind, sort of be completed during the Trump administration to some extent, but then the Biden administration is going to have to work more with the American people to actually enforce vaccine being administered. So I guess how do you think that poses a unique challenge to the Biden team? And how will public health measures sort of be affected by this transition and this timing with the vaccine? Yeah. So while I think, and I've been you know, obsessed with testing since March, and so I think testing stuff is going to be a huge priority for the Biden team, and I, it is, it's this logistical challenges of getting hundreds of millions of Americans vaccinated over the next six plus months uh, is immense. Uh, so many of these vaccines, including the Pfizer vaccine, has to be stored essentially frozen and shipped frozen, dethawed and given to people. Um, we need uh, and, and there's just this massive logistical challenge to get the vaccines out into places where people can show up and get vaccinated. That's one huge issue. Um, second is we need a very clear plan on priorities. Who's going to get vaccinated first? Who's going to get vaccinated second? Who's going to get vaccinated third? Third, and, and, and maybe the hardest of all three, is we need a, um, an information and educational uh, campaign that builds trust in, uh, in the vaccine. There is a lot of hesitancy. Um, I don't believe that, uh, and I may have said this before, I don't believe the term Operation Warp Speed was helpful. It creates a sense that somehow we're cutting corners. Uh, the good news is we have not been cutting corners. Uh, the, the vaccine development has been done with incredible scientific integrity. Um, and, and I think a lot of the credit of why we've gotten to where we are uh, goes to the Trump administration. They have done a fabulous job on speeding up uh, the development of this vaccine, putting resources into it. Uh, you know, I feel like I am uh, happy to criticize the Trump administration when they screw up and they have messed up a lot in this pandemic. But on the vaccine stuff, they've been terrific. And, um, and the Biden team is going to inherit a process that's been done well, 
hopefully the capacity and, and lots and lots of doses of the vac of various vaccines. But then they're going to have to figure out how to get it out and how to get people to feel comfortable taking it. And that's an enormous challenge. And uh, and that and it's all going to depend on that, because, you know, I, I have a I, this is kind of almost trite line that I often use, which is vaccines don't save lives. Vaccinations do. And there's a there's actually quite a large gap between vaccines and vaccinations. Um, and they have to do with trust and they have to do with supply chains. Do you worry at all that although the news, I think, at least to me, made me feel a lot more hopeful and um, looking forward to the next couple of months? Um, do you worry at all that the news might um, have people sort of um, reverting back to some not super safe behaviors because they're so optimistic that this vaccine will come out? Yep, absolutely. So one of the things that, that's been hard from a communications challenge has been trying to help people understand that the next two to three months will be the hardest months of the pandemic. And we are, and the vaccine is not going to help in the next two, three months, not in any meaningful way. Um, whereas get beyond two to three months and things will start getting brighter much, much faster. Right. And, and so that means that actually you want to be particularly careful from a public health point of view for the next two, three months, because it's sort of like we're almost there. This is not the time to get sick. This is not the time to die. Not that it's ever the time to die, but like this is the time to protect people because we're so close. Now, imagine we didn't have a vaccine. Imagine the alternative world of the vaccine had failed spectacularly and and made us worry that all the vaccines were going to fail. Then we would be saying, my God, we're like a year away or long term time away from like really being able to. Then we would have it would be harder to justify all of the public health measures because they do have a real cost. And but right now, like we should be doing everything we can to protect people because we're so close to the finish line. And uh, the way I see this is in December, by the end of December, January, I believe we're going to have two to three vaccines authorized. In December and January, we're going to start getting healthcare workers vaccinated, uh, high-risk people in February, March, um, and and many of the kind of rest of folks by like March, April, May. And so it's sort of like hang on for a few more months, and life will get better. Life will get meaningfully better. Um, this is not the time to let go of these restrictions. And I worry a lot that people are overestimating how quickly vaccines are going to become widely available. FDA hasn't even re reviewed this yet. They have not even authorized it. Um, you know, uh, Pfizer thinks that they're going to have 20 million doses for America over the next month or six weeks. That's 10 million people vaccinated because everybody needs to get two doses. Let me assure you that if, unless you're a frontline healthcare worker or a first responder, you're not getting that vaccine in that first batch. Uh, and so it's so it's it's so not a, like right there, right? We gotta we gotta hold on. I want to just ask too about the the having to get two doses. Um, is that a fear at all? And, and is there a possibility that? Well, I guess a fear that people won't get the second dose is what I'm thinking. And then my other thought is that um, could there be another vaccine that just is a single dose, or you know, which us Americans will probably would welcome having only one shot. <laughs> Yeah, no, there are single-dose vaccines that are pretty far along in clinical trials. So I fully expect single-dose vaccines to be coming as well. Um, this is a, a two-dose. Your protection is going to be much, much lower after one dose. 
And so people will, and, and I do worry about, I mean, just a logistical challenge of making sure people can come back after 28 days, right? If you think about it. Um, and I'm, I'm less worried about like healthcare workers and, and first responders, but I am more worried once it gets to the broader population and, uh, and people who are otherwise healthy. Um, I, what I'm thinking is that if we are lucky enough to get a single dose vaccine out, let's say by late winter, or early spring, then maybe we really use a two-dose vaccine for high-risk people and, all, and, and um, first responders and, and those folks. And then for the broader population, it might end up being that we, are, we go to a more single dose just because it'll be easier to administer. But we're going to have to see. And obviously, like now I'm getting three steps ahead of myself because we've just not seen any data yet on the single-dose vaccine. And we've got we've to wait. But I am optimistic we're going to get to a single-dose vaccine by spring. I know that we don't have a lot of time left and we haven't even touched on the 160,000 cases uh, in a single day. Uh, just, I think every time we talk, we talk about how big the numbers are and then they seem to get bigger and bigger. Um, so I don't know if you wanna to touch on that. Yeah, so um, this is, yeah, I, as I said, I think we're in, in the worst moment of the pandemic. There's more infections right now in America than at any point. And I, it, it's hard to see what the circuit breakers are. Like, it's hard to see what slows this down. You know, and governors and mayors are, I think, reacting way too late. The federal government has essentially thrown in the towel and has decided they're not going to do anything. Uh, this is not where we should be in this pandemic. I think we need to see more, le more leadership from governors around the country. Um, and I will tell you, right now we have about 1,000 to 1,200 Americans dying. We are going to, like... 2,000 deaths a day is already baked into the system. We are going to get there. Um, we are going to have more than 100,000 Americans die between now and Inauguration Day. Um, and it's wholly unnecessary. Like, we've got to hold on. Those 100,000 people, if we could have gotten them through it, um, would have gotten vaccinated and could have lived a very long time. So I, I just find this kind of unbelievable that this is where we are. And, and ultimately... The thing that is going to get us through this is if people themselves are careful. I don't think we should be expecting leadership from our leaders. And so I think we all have to exercise our own leadership. And that means being careful. It means always wearing a mask when you're outside your home. And it means not getting together with people who you don't live with indoors for any extended period of time. Just not doing it. Two months. Two months. It's not, we're not talking about forever, but two months. And, I, and everybody needs to do it. And then I think... It, I think we can get, you know, we'll get through it and then things will start getting better. Thank you so much, Dr. Shaw. It's always so lovely to talk to you, even though it's a tough subject. And um, we look forward to talking to you again very soon. Thank you so much for having me. And it's always fun chatting about this. And let me just say one quick thing. I know that it can feel like um, this is a downtime and, and this all sort of feels a bit depressing. Um, as I said, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. It's getting brighter and brighter and I'm really excited about the future. It will get so much better and we'll get much of our lives back and let's just do what we need to do to protect people until we get there. This podcast was produced by the Brown Daily Herald. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on our website, browndailyherald.com. The music was created and composed by Catherine Beggs, a Brown University undergraduate student and check back with us next week, where we'll sit down with Dr. Jaw for a bonus episode about how to stay safe over Thanksgiving and the coming holidays. Thanks for listening.